Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Gospel of our Lord. You can have a seat. Well, there are two types of people in the room this morning. There are those of us who braved the weather to come out to church, which was quite a feat, and there are those of us who finished writing our sermon at 9.25 a.m., and for both of us, I think it probably would do us well to begin today by just coming home to ourselves, and so if you would, maybe close your eyes, and remember for a minute what it's like to live inside the skin coat that you've been given, what it's like to be yourself, within yourself. Maybe you could begin to feel breath, ruach, the breath of life, the breath of creativity, the breath that animates all that we do. And whatever it is you're bringing into this room, just to make peace with that. Come, Holy Spirit, and give us the gift of your presence. For if you are in this room, then nothing else matters. And if you are not in this room, well, then then nothing else matters. Amen. I I was a a mere 30 minutes 
into the first session with my new therapist when she started waving her hands like an air traffic controller and telling me to please, for the love of God, stop talking and catch a breath. Stunned by her brashness, I slumped back in my chair and she leaned forward in hers. She said, I can already tell you what your problem is. Okay, I said dismissively, what is it? And then a mischievous smile crept across her face. She crooked her bony finger in the direction of my nose and she said, your problem is that you're inauthentic and you better fix it because your inauthenticity is going to kill you. Now in the months that followed, I would come to learn very quickly that Dr. Feinstein, a non-observant Upper West Side Jewish septuagenarian, had truth serum running in her veins. But at the time, in my first session with her, her words and her candor struck me like the back of a hand. But you know what? As I started to think about it in that moment, in that session, what I realized was she wasn't wrong, actually. See, I was in her office that day, at the end of my rope, out of options, confused, unsure where to go next because months earlier I'd experienced a string of inexplicable physical maladies. First, I woke with a, a painful stinging sensation stretching across the trunk of my body. When the attending physician at urgent care surveyed the welts, he said, are you stressed? Because you have shingles. Weeks after that subsided, my forehead and my cheeks had developed an itchy, ruddy band across them. When the dermatologist ex uh, examined the rash, he said, are you stressed? Because you've broken out in hives. Shortly after that, my gums began to ache and bleed, so I naturally went to see a dentist who started to ask me a question before I interrupted her and said, let me guess, you're wondering if I'm stressed, and the answer is yes. And she said, as a matter of fact, that was what I was going to ask you. Gum infections like this are often stress-induced. And so this is when I decided it was time to go and see a new therapist. And I chose Dr. Feinstein because she specialized in psychosomatic disorders, physical manifestations of emotional and psychological stress. And within minutes, she had diagnosed me apparently with chronic inauthenticity, something I didn't know existed. For me, this disorder began in childhood, which is where it often begins, I think, for most of us who are afflicted with this malady at a young age. We will often begin to realize that our family, our classmates, our community in general have certain standards that govern participation and value of its community members. And adherence to these standards, so the child begins to realize, results in a greater level of acceptance and more praise, a greater number of opportunities and more accolades. There's a positive feedback mechanism, right? So naturally, the child begins to play act in social settings, to pretend they are the person that everybody else wants them to be. And of course, the system works perfectly as it has for all human history. The more the child conforms to the standards of the community, the more acceptance and praise and opportunities and accolades they receive. My childhood friend Molly grew up in a home where her mother, a former beauty queen, told her that 
good girls are supposed to be quiet and pretty and mysterious, and so to this day, Molly holds back her strongest opinions. She always shows up for dinner looking dashing. I went to college with Samuel. Samuel's father told him he couldn't be into fine arts because, well, boys are supposed to play sports and hunt and do manly things. Samuel would always close the door of his dorm room when he listened to show tunes so that nobody would hear. I have a colleague named Cynthia who adopted two children. She lives in California. Her family life is a dumpster fire. Of course, you wouldn't know it if you looked at her Instagram account where she and her family are presented as the standard of familial perfection. You see, inauthenticity, chronic inauthenticity, is a malady that afflicts us all, I am afraid, but some of us, I think, suffer more than others. I'm one of those someones. The early stages of my own infirmity began earlier than I can remember. See, I was raised in a conservative Christian home where I was given a lengthy set of rules, and I was told that I must follow these rules without exception if I were to be considered a good Christian boy, if I were to be acceptable to God, if I were to be acceptable to my community, if I were to be acceptable to my church. And so once I figured out the game, all there was left to do was win the game. So I worked overtime doing everything I could to make everyone think I was a good boy. I was a good boy. Most days, I followed all of the rules. On occasion, if I broke one, I hid it or I lied about it. The guilt produced from admitting a second broken rule was less painful than the shame of admitting the first one. My situation intensified, however, because I was also the son of a prominent Christian pastor. So I became acutely aware from an early age of what everybody else thinks about me. I notice the looks. I manage the whispers. I monitor the perceptions. Growing up, I remember my, my parents and my two brothers would sometimes have fights on the ride to church in our family minivan, a common scenario for many families. But ours always had the same ending. We would pull into the church, our voices hoarse from shouting, our feelings tattered and bruised, and then one of my parents inevitably would turn around and face us and say, okay, kids, we're at church now. It's time for everybody to be on their best behavior. You are merits, and you need to act like it. The door would slide open, and a miraculous transformation would occur. We would file out of that vehicle, smiles replacing scowls, the tone of our voices changing from scathing to saccharine. We would all hold hands even though we wanted to pull each other's arms out of socket. You see, I learned from an early age how to pretend to be someone other than myself, how to pretend to be someone who doesn't actually exist. I developed what Carl Jung called a persona, or what psychologists and spiritualists call a false self. In Jungian language, this is a kind of shell, an exoskeleton that we create, which is designed, I'm using Jung's words, on the one hand to make a definite impression on others, and on the other hand, to conceal the true nature of the individual who lies beneath it. It's just living 
underneath a false self, a created self that we have invented for the purpose of acceptability and likability. Now, this is not just something that I have done. We all do it, and I'm sorry to tell you, to inform you this morning, that you do it too. In fact, many of you, I think, this morning have come in here wearing a mask right now. Perhaps you've never walked into this room without it. Most psychologists will tell you that you can calm down. This is normal. And it can even be healthy early in life. It can be healthy for children because the false self not only hides us, the false self protects us. It protects us from social forces and social structures, religious forces and religious structures that might otherwise cause us trauma. The problem occurs when the child becomes an adult, when he or she ages, and she can't figure out how to shake it off, how to release the false self, how to remove that mask. And eventually what happens is, is the adult versions of us, we struggle to remember what our true selves were like before all of this started. Or we begin to think that our masks are our faces, which is what happened to me. I was halfway into my 30s, a successful writer and speaker, traveling around with a mask fused to my face, still trying to be a good Christian boy. If I needed to pretend to believe something to be considered orthodox, well, I would affirm it. If I needed to attack someone on social media to prove I was on the right side of the bait rather than the wrong one, while well, I would fight valiantly. I humble bragged about my successes. I shared stories of my spiritual victories, always the hero in every story I told. I was a performer, a shapeshifter. Somebody who had perfected the art of play acting in order to be accepted and like, but the whole charade was costing me dearly. My body was literally revolting against my own inauthenticity. See, what my counselor was trying to get me to understand that day about physical health, I think, is similar to what our gospeler, Luke, is trying to tell us in today's reading that a prerequisite to health, a prerequisite to healing and wholeness, and even to alignment with God, to connection with the divine, is the ability to see and to know and to tell the truth about who you really are. See, Luke tells us here that Jesus gives us a parable, a fun little story, and he tells it to a specific group of people. Luke says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down at everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Jesus is speaking to those of us who begin each morning with a cup of coffee while they read their own press clippings. People who have not just pretended to have everything, or be everything, but come to believe that they can be everything for all they need. And as often happens, as they have inflated their own sense of self, rising higher and higher, everybody else begins to appear like an army of ants down below. Like every good storyteller, Jesus' tale has characters. Like every good storyteller, 
these characters are far more complex and more three-dimensional than they first seem to be. The first character to walk onto our stage this morning is a Pharisee, a pious and religious churchman. Now, if you've spent much time in church over your life, you're probably predisposed to assume right from the beginning this is the villain of our story. I mean, we Christians, I would say even we Americans who have grown up in a largely Christianized nation, we don't have high opinions of Pharisees based on our reading of the Bible, often anti-Semitic readings. Indeed, we have come to dislike Pharisees so much that we have commandeered that word, inserting it into the English lexicon in its ijectival form, a kind of junk drawer for everything that epitomizes what's wrong with religion and religious people. Who wants to be called pharisaical? I don't. So we despise Pharisees, and perhaps we despise them precisely because we are like them, though we would never admit it. Now, the Pharisee in our story, he enters and he prays a prayer, an interesting prayer, a prayer that sort of strikes us as arrogant at first. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, Donald Trump. And then with a glance across the room, he adds, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week. I donate a tenth of my income to charity. And then right behind this description, Luke decides without commentary to introduce us to a second character. Now, if you spent much time in church, you're probably predisposed to see this character as a, a kind of flawed hero. In the Gospels, and I would say especially in Luke's Gospel, tax collectors are, and I'm quoting a scholar here, Amy Jill Levine, invariably sinners who are on their way, naturally, to becoming righteous. Tax collectors get baptized by John. They're regular guests at Jesus' dinner parties. One named Levi becomes a prominent disciple. Another named Zacchaeus provides us with a stunning picture of what repentance looks like. We sort of see them as uh, good people, flawed but good people. Here, the Pharisee enters and pray, the, the tax collector enters and prays a prayer that will strike most of you, I assume, as being deeply humble. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's like he doesn't even have the will to recount his good deeds. Right? E either because he has done none, or because he's smart enough to know that they don't count for much in the grand scheme of things. So there we have it, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the good guy and the bad guy, the prideful one and the humble one, black and white. I'm not going to take that interpretation this morning because I think we in the church have had too much of this pitting one person against another. For us, the story is not the Pharisee and the tax collector, it's the Pharisee versus the tax collector. A moral tale told with the simplicity of a childhood Sunday school lesson, forcing us to decide who's good and who's bad, who we are and who we aren't. There's only one problem, I would say, with this interpretation of the parable. It doesn't work. First of all, while we read the Pharisee's prayer as incredibly arrogant, it would not have been considered arrogant in that day. Studies in antiquity will show you there are many 
common, similar Jewish prayers from this era in history. It was very commonplace. In fact, this prayer is probably a version of a, comic, a common rabbinic prayer that would begin with a phrase like this, I thank thee, O Lord, that I am not a Gentile, a woman. Now, whether you think this is a good way to pray or not is really beside the point. The fact is, Jesus never questions this man's sincerity, this man's integrity, and his listeners would not have been clutching their pearls at this character's arrogance. They would have seen this person as an upstanding moral citizen whose resume, quite frankly, would make him a perfect candidate to pastor a church just like this one. Furthermore, the tax collector is not a laudable but flawed hero whose act of repentance in the temple this day provides some sort of, of, of paragon of humanity, a portrait of goodness and virtue. At the time that Jesus told this story, Rome had conquered and occupied Palestine for almost 100 years. You can imagine if you were living in New York City and an occupying force came, conquered our nation, changing our way of life, harassing us and our children, and then levying heavy taxes on us to pay for their domestic terrorism. Tax collectors were reviled. If a Jew in the first century even had physical contact with a Roman, they were considered ritualistically unclean. To make matters worse, the Romans didn't ship tax collectors into town. That would be too inefficient. Instead, they would choose natives in the land, people who knew where everybody lived and how much money they made. And of course, they only selected the highest bidders, right? They would hire the people who promised to squeeze the most out of all who lived in town. Now, the Romans were not micromanagers in their defense. They expected the tax collectors to force the people to pay tribute to the territory and the empire, but they didn't care how the sausage was made, so long as it didn't cause sedition. So tax collectors would squeeze as much money out of the people as possible, diverting money, by the way, from their poor neighbors to the wealthy empire and keeping whatever they could skim off the top to procure. The tax collector is a traitor. He is exploiting his own people. The tax collector is an apostate, choosing a pagan, oppressive government over God's chosen people. So as a result, the tax collector's uh, social options were, we might say, severely limited, which is why I think probably Jesus says that the tax collector prayed at a distance. One scholar says ancient Palestinian tax collectors aren't like contemporary internal revenue service agents paid to enforce the law. They are franchisees of a corrupt and Byzantine system that gouges the poor and enriches the wealthy. Though we've made this, this tax collector some kind of paragon of virtue, it's important to note one thing. He makes no promise to reform or repent. How many people have walked in this building? How many of us have walked in this building begging for mercy, sure, but with no indication of quitting our job? In fact, we can only assume he is like us, offering repentance on Sunday for that mess we made on Friday that we will likely repeat come next weekend. It's wonderful to acknowledge poor behavior and ask for mercy, but if your statements aren't accompanied by commitment to stop doing those things, even a child can tell you they're not worth much. 
So we can go ahead, I think, and dispel this popular myth that Jesus tells us a flat moral tale about a laudable, humble tax collector and a nasty, arrogant Pharisee. Because you know what happens? Once we read it that way, irony saturates the room. We begin to judge one character as the bad and arrogant one and the other as the virtuous and laudable one, which is to say we are trapped by the parable. Bowing our heads to pray, thank you, O Lord, that you haven't made me like this Pharisee. The joke will have been told, but the audience will have become the punchline. This is how we're tempted to understand the story, but I think such an understanding prompts in us the same kind of binary, judgmental thinking that it seeks to dismantle with the story of its characters. As the lake preacher Fred Craddock said in his commentary on this text, the Pharisee is not a venomous villain and the publican is not a generous Joe the bartender or Goldie the good-hearted hooker. Such portrayals belong in cheap novels. If the Pharisee is pictured as a villain and the tax collector as a hero, then each gets what he deserves. There is no surprise of grace and the parable is robbed But what actually happens in Jesus' story is that what both receive is in spite of, not because of. See, the way this story is told, it actually emphasizes the similarity of these two men, not their differences. Both men are Jewish. Both men are seemingly pious. They go to the same church. They both pray. And when they both pray, they both address the same God. I pastored churches in my day, and I will tell you, I've pastored Pharisees and tax collectors, and they're often pretty hard to tell apart. I've been both Pharisees and tax collectors, and sometimes I can't tell which I am. The real difference between these two men is that one is willing to tell the truth about himself to himself, and the other, well, the other is not. Late Catholic mystic Thomas Merton once wrote, we have a choice of two identities, the external mask, which seems to be real, and the hidden inner person who seems to us to be nothing, but who can give himself eternally to the truth in whom he subsists. Merton calls this illusory person the false self, which he dubs a personal salvation project, a construction of our imaginations intended to save us in a perilous world filled with perilous people. The true self is the person you really are. The false self is the person you wish you were, the person you want everybody else to believe you are. The true self, as a result, can handle criticism Well, the false self, the false self is fragile, easily offended. The true self, when the true self is in community, the true self looks others in the eyes. The false self peers down its nose at everyone else. Here's how one spiritual psychologist describes the false self. It's the person who lives with the illusion that we are able to love perfectly to be wise and all-knowing and to be in control of life. 
The false self thrives, she writes, on success and achievement. The false self is indeed a very impressive person. The problem is, is that the false self is a facade and not the unique person that God created each of us to be. Now, this may sound to you like Jonathan has waltzed in here today with uh, a tale of pop psychology, mumbo jumbo, but this is actually deeply Christian teaching. Writer Frederick Beekner notes that the first chapter of Genesis, the first word that God speaks to humans is you. And in the last chapter of the last book of Revelation, the last word a human speaks to God is come, Lord Jesus, which is to say, come, you. Beekner reflects on this significance by saying it is possible that this whole miracle of creation is to bridge the immeasurable distance between creature and creator with one small word, with the word you, and that every time we humans use it, enter into it, we will bridge the immeasurable distance between each other and something of that very first miracle happens again. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul calls the self, the false self, the old self. Your therapist might call it the ego self, which is the person who sees life through an it's all about me lens, right? In his letters, both to the Romans and to the Corinthians, Paul calls us to shake off this old self and to become what he calls a new self, which is a person who reflects the image of God, the image of divine love made inside of them. This is exactly what Jesus also preaches in his own gospel when he talks about dying to ourselves. It's what Jesus meant when he said in the gospel of Mark, we must lose ourselves to find ourselves. No wonder great Christian thinkers have valued this spiritual practice, the spiritual practice of seeing, knowing, and telling the truth about who we are. Augustine prayed, grant, Lord, that I may know myself, that I may know thee. Medieval Christian thinker Thomas Akempis said, a humble self-knowledge is a surer way to God than a search after deep learning. Protestant reformer John Calvin said, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. So if you ask me, when I think about the 21st century, a world that has given us the perfect tools to become people who do not exist, I think we need this Christian wisdom now more than ever. Living in 21st century America makes, makes excavating one's true you more difficult than ever before. The dominant cultural and technological forces of the age in which we live are perfectly designed to shape us into false self. We now possess scripts and maps for every occasion we can imagine, telling us how to dress, how to pose, how to fall in love, how to navigate conflict, how to act and to react in all of life's most monumental milestones. Gillian Flynn in her book, Gone Girl, she talks about this era in which we live, saying it makes us exceptionally, it makes it exceptionally difficult for us to exist as real people 
in real time and space, rather than just some sort of cocktail of personality traits that have been handed to us by marketers, trendsetters, and Instagram influencers. Flynn writes this, and I'm going to read it because it's so powerful. She says, we were the first human beings who would never see anything for the first time. We stare at the wonders of the world, dull-eyed, underwhelmed. Mona Lisa, the pyramids, the Empire State Building, jungle animals on attack, ancient icebergs collapsing, volcanoes erupting. You know, I cannot recall a single amazing thing I have seen firsthand that I didn't immediately reference to a movie or a TV show. A commercial. You know, the, often, the awful sing-song of the blasé? Seen it. I've literally seen it all. And the worst thing, the thing that makes me want to blow my brains out is this. The second-hand experience is always better. The image is crisper. The view is keener. The camera angle and the soundtrack manipulate my emotions in a way that reality can't anymore. And then she says this, she says, I don't know that we're actually human at this point. Those of us who are like most of us who grew up with TV and movies and now the internet, if we are betrayed, we know the words to say. When a loved one dies, well, we know the words to say. If we want to play the stud or the smartass or the fool, we know the words to say. Sorry, children. Because we are all working from the same dog-eared script. Self-help experts and spiritual gurus are fond of talking about life as a journey, and I suppose that metaphor is good as far as it goes. But you know what? I wish that those sages would tell us a little more about how this works, that every traveler eventually reaches a fork in the road at which time they must make a decision. They will either liberate their true selves or else they will roam the streets wreaking havoc while wearing their elaborately constructed masks. And when you reach that fork, which we all do, well-worded tips and memorable one-liners and alliterated best principles are as useless as a wickless candle. In that moment, you must, you must find a way to summon the courage to liberate yourself from the captivity of others' expectations and your own ambitions. This is the decision that Jesus is calling us to. To start telling the truth about ourselves to ourselves. To stop trying to be the person that everybody else wants us to be or expects us to be. To stop living misaligned lives of chronic inauthenticity. Your false self is killing you and you have to kill your false self. But let me warn you that this is not a task for the faint of heart. It will require that we honor and respect that which is outside of our control. It will require that we accept personal limits, to be mindful of our need to impress others, to resist comparisons, to learn to ask for help, to devote ourselves to the spiritual disciplines of insecurity and uncertainty, 
And this, this is perhaps the hardest one. To bravely embrace the transformative power of relationship. You see, the false self cannot be dismantled by a lone mechanic on a lonely island. It has to be done in community. It takes a village. You cannot always see your mask because you're wearing it. You cannot be both in front of it and behind it at the same time. You need someone, some ones in your life who can hold up a mirror. Notice what Luke says in verse 11. He says, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. The Pharisee was off on his own where these false ideas about his own righteousness could foment and ferment and expand and metathesize. The Pharisee was not a bad person. He was living in a mirrorless house, a perfect environment for the false self to flourish. I have heard so many people say to me something like this, I'm not ready to date, I'm not, I'm not ready to be in a relationship. I, I got things I need to work on. Problem is, is that all the, re, all the research on this shows that, that personal growth and transformation happens within relationships. That, that because of that relationship, we actually can find a way to become who we actually are. Desmond Tutu says, a person is a person through other persons. None of us comes into this world fully formed. We would not know how to think or walk or speak or behave as human beings unless we learned it from other human beings. We need other human beings in order to be human, or you might say it this way, I am because other people are. If you want to dismantle the false self, you will need to dive deep into relationship with safe, safe people, people you trust, who are with you, who are for you, who are willing to tell you the truth about you, people who are willing to call forth the true you, to help that beautiful person inside of you emerge from behind that fabricated mask. Of course, there's more in this passage, I think, than just a message about our false self. There's also a message about false gods. And we do violence to our spiritual selves if we do not stop to consider this message as well. The Pharisee and the tax collector pray to the same God, but they don't understand God in the same way. The Pharisee believes God to be a bean counter. Somebody who is somewhere up there tallying up good deeds on a heavenly spreadsheet and awarding gold stars to those at the top of the list. So naturally, he's making sure God has done the math correctly. The tax collector, on the other hand, he assumes that God doesn't even have Excel loaded onto his laptop. He believes if he can simply find the courage to bring forth his true self into the presence of the divine, then that, that radical act, well, that will be enough. Who has a more accurate view of God? 
Jesus tells us in verse 14, I tell you, the tax collector rather than the Pharisee went home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That word that, that Luke uses, justified, it means to be made right. It means to be brought together. It means to be aligned with, to experience relationship with. And so the message that Jesus is giving us here seems to be, when you are honest with yourself, about yourself, the, the doorway to the divine is unlocked. That there's something about that authenticity that begins to push open what, what, what Celtic spiritualists would call the thin veil that, that, se that separates this world from the world to come. Now, let's not condemn the Pharisee for his assumption about who God is, because if you're like me, you are tempted to believe in this kind of God, too. It's why you feel good after clicking that donate button. It's why you feel good about yourself when you hand that homeless person a hamburger, half-eaten probably. Something inside of you assumes you are objectively better because you did that. And this is when we have to come and stand before the Christian gospel. Because the central message of the Christian gospel is that God is our father. And like the best father in the world, God loves you because God loves you, because God loves you, because God loves you, because God loves you, because that is just who God is and that is just what God does. And there is nothing that you can do this day that will make God love you an iota more and nothing that you can do this day to make God love you an ounce less. Or as Whitney said, that the cosmic force of love is aimed at you every day. And that's the mustard seed of the message this morning. God doesn't love you because you're good. God loves you because God is good. So you can go ahead and stop pretending. You can go ahead and unfurl those white knuckled fists that are clinging to the desire to be in control and the desire to be liked and the desire to be successful. I love the way that, that Eugene Peterson renders verse 14. He says, if you walk around with your nose in the air, you're going to end up flat on your face. But if you're content to be simply yourself, you will become more than yourself. You know, the day I left Dr. Feinstein's office, I would love to tell you I was a changed person. That I walked away and I left my mask at the front desk. But it wouldn't be true. I'd love to tell you that I, that I walked in there praying like the Pharisee and I walked out praying like the tax collector, but I don't want to lie to you this morning. Some days I am still a darn good Pharisee, spinning fairy tales about myself in order to be accepted by all of you and by God. And other days, on those rare good days, I'm a little more clear-eyed. And something stirs in me, and I muster the courage to tell the truth about myself and ask for a little mercy along the way. I hope you'll give me that when I do. It takes time to stop wearing that mask, to become comfortable at the sight of your own face Sometimes it even feels like a kind of death, but a life-giving death. A death that leads to resurrection. A death that leads to life. A death that leads 
to love. A death that leads us home. So I hope that today you will at least try to lurch toward your own kind of commitment in your own way to be simply yourself so that you will become more than yourself. Amen.